Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. Our hosts, Dr. Lynn Kohick and Dr. Ingrid Farrow, are joined today by Mary DeMuth. Mary is an author, storyteller, and prayer warrior. She loves to help readers and audiences live uncaged, freedom-infused lives. Mary is the author of more than 40 books. She's spoken around the world about God's ability to transform a life, bringing needed freedom to her audiences. She's the host of the popular daily podcast, Pray Every Day. She's been on CNN and featured in the Washington Post, Christianity Today, and the New York Times. She's spoken around the world and she has planted a church with her family in Southern France. And her family, she's a mom to three amazing young adults and she's been married to Patrick for 29 years. She currently lives in Dallas. And if you wanna learn more about Mary, you can check her out at marydemuth.com or at we2.org. So welcome Mary to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Mary, uh, this is Lynn and I wanna echo Serene's welcome. We're so delighted, Ingrid and I, we're so delighted to have you uh, talk with us on the uh, Alabaster Jar podcast. And your book is just fascinating. We too how the church can respond redemptively to the sexual abuse crisis. And I love the uh, one of the phrases that you make in in this book, you you talk about how trauma is the mission field of our time that captured my imagination. Trauma is the mission field of our time. Mary, could you unpack that a little bit in the, the summary? Could you summarize for us the, your main message in We Too. Sure, just in one second. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, first, I have to say that I didn't come up with that phraseology. That's a direct quote from Dr. Diane Langberg, Trauma is the Mission Field of Our Time. And I so resonated with it that I quoted her in the book. And I do believe it's true because as I've been around um, in different parts of the world, Um, particularly uh, it came to light in South Africa when I was speaking about sexual abuse there and the line was extraordinarily long and the percentages in some parts of other parts of the world are not like the U.S. are much worse. And so many women have endured um, and men have endured sexual trauma and they are living in the aftermath of it. And so Having it be the mission field, as Dr. Langberg so astutely put, um, I think it's a really lovely metaphor for the way we view trauma victims, because a lot of times we view them as negations, as someone to be endured, someone to be like, oh, we've got to deal with that person, or I wish they'd just get over it, instead of seeing them as um, as a benefit to the church and uh, had the opportunity to speak at a conference where I was able to make that theological argument that when you talk about the body of Christ and the unseemly members and those that are covered and the those that are more, quote, shameful are the ones that we deem with greater dignity. And so my thesis in that sense is the church is missing out on the gift that trauma su- survivors are to her. Oh, that's very powerful. Yeah, and instead... We tend in the church to, um, well, you talk about reputation management, right? Can you unpack a little bit about what what that what that is? Yeah, so I think a lot of churches feel like they're safe because they've hired maybe you know a, a cursory ministry to 
say they're safe, but a lot of times those, not all of them, but some of those ministries are more about protecting you from liability and protecting your reputation than they are about protecting children. And so we do need to be very cautious about who we bring into our churches when we create child protection policies. Um, In terms of just real life examples, I have seen time and time again where perpetrators, particularly when they're within the church structure, particularly a leader, they tend to be more believed and treated kinder than the whistleblower or the one who was the victim. And that shows me that there is more interest in attracting people into the doors to pay a bunch of money than they are actually shepherding sheep who are vulnerable. Yeah, Mary, and you talk about on uh, and list out reasons for why you think there is this silence. Um, can you help us? That, I mean, you, I think you give about seven there, including uh, the example of shame and learned helplessness. I know Ingrid and I were talking earlier, and she especially pointed out learned helplessness. I don't know, Ingrid, if you wanted to jump in with your insight. No, I'd like to uh, have Mary talk about it because, again, you know, I'm, I'm a, an abuse survivor also. So I was resonating on it. I was like, yes, yes, yes. People need to read this. So, yeah. <laughs> so if you would, please just to, you know, talk about that because it was so well outlined. Right. So I think the reason, and I hope I'm answering your question in the intent that you have it, but I think the reason that we don't bring it out to the light from a victim's pr- perspective is a lot of times uh, victims have brought it out into the light and were silenced. That happened to me. I immediately brought it out into the light. At five years old, I was super brave. I did the right thing and was disbelieved or dismissed. And so that learned helplessness then kicks in because after you've told a couple of people and they just don't believe you or they don't care or they just walk away or, oh, that's not really sexual abuse, whatever excuse they'll say, then we begin to think that we have no volition anymore and so there's a giant risk to tell. Um, and I think churches create that culture of silence a- around this issue because it's shameful. It's, it's not like someone stole my, my purse. It's that someone stole my dignity. <laughs> and so it's harder to share. Another thing I'll add that I think churches do a poor job of, and I'm praying that they change, is that in all these years as a Christ follower, I, I can't, other than me preaching it, I cannot recall a time from the front of a church where they talked about this issue in a theologically adept way. And what that does is it it normalizes it, which it's a sadly a very normal thing to go through these days. More people than don't have had some sort of sexual violation or some sort of, um, you know, something that happened to them that was uncomfortable. And so by normalizing it and say, we all deal with it and, and taking the light away from the, the predatory person and placing it on the person who has walked through this darkness for so long, it helps us to not feel so crazy. And so I think a part of that culture of learned helplessness is just the culture of the church where we just don't talk about it or it's too, we don't want to, you know, push people away. But I would argue that you wouldn't push people away. You would probably have to make sure that your counseling center was a lot more beefed up before you said that uh, and you had good support groups before you addressed it from the front. But isn't that what we're supposed to do? Aren't we supposed to shepherd our sheep? And isn't this a gigantic 
thing that we're pretending doesn't exist. Well, and when you mentioned uh, from the from the pulpit, one of the things that really struck me, and as Ingrid and I were talking about the book, uh, impressed both of us, is you use this image of light, and you just mentioned it now, light and darkness, um, as you see it throughout scripture. It's it's a scriptural theme or uh, meta theme that it seems to me kind of helps you gain a theology of um, addressing uh, trauma and fighting against trauma and supporting victims. Use this light, this theme of light in scripture. Can you talk a little bit about maybe how you came to this and, and why you feel this is such an effective metaphor? Well, I think it goes back to, you know, those times when you struggle with a sin. And of course, this is not necessarily talking about a sin. It's a sin against you. <laughs> um, but I, I just like, when I have finally let out that sin and talked about it to a friend and let it into the light, all of the shame and all of the the weird darkness surrounding that and all those terrible voices inside my head that said, are you really a Christian? Those kind of things, they just dissipate, dissipate completely. And the light just cleans it out. And so like in the same manner, when you have been sinned against and you feel shameful about it and you hear all these voices about how you're unworthy and well, you must've wanted it or you asked for it or whatever terrible lies that you're hearing, um, by bringing it into the light, and one of the things I tell audiences is an untold story never heals. By telling your story to a very safe person, you take away the power of that darkness over you that has been hanging over you for decades. It's brave. It's terrifying. Um, and it should be with a safe person, not a dismissive person. Um, and I talk a little bit about uh, that in the book about who is a safe person and who's an unsafe person. But even if you do let it out to an unsafe person, there's still that little bit of light that has crept in. I remember telling my story for the second time 10 years later, and the person I told it to did not believe me. And I was so desperate for healing. And by then, I had just become a Christian like months before. And I was like, no, this person is going to believe me. I'm going to make them believe me. So I told the story like eight times in a row, never deviating. I remember all the details. And finally, the person believed me, and there was such relief in that. That's very powerful that you were able, even then with still a fairly young age, to be able to, to talk about it. And in conjunction with that, you also tie in, we must face evil. This is one, and, uh, page 91 of your book, we must face evil as, as it is, not playing it down or partying it up or prettying it up. And along with that, you have the very key word, we must not take the cross lightly. And I think that's so powerful, you know, naming the evil, bringing, exposing the evil, but also this, um, you know, there is no such thing as cheap grace, you know, just recognizing. So I would love to hear you talk more about just developing that a little bit more about ways that how harmful it is when we don't take the cross seriously. I remember uh, listening to novelist Ted Decker talk to novelists about portraying evil. And he said something like, I refuse to portray evil in shades of gray because it undermines the great power of the cross. And so it's no, I, th I think as a novelist, um, there's a temptation as a Christian novelist just to kind of make everything easy and, and not really portray evil as it is. But the reality is, is it is real. 
And I think it thrives in our silence. And so it is better for us to name it than pretend it doesn't exist. I call this the happy world syndrome. I think a lot of Christians have this happy world syndrome where they just, maybe they see the whole outside world, you know, like as evil and awful. But in my church, this is where my happy world is. So I can't hear about sexual abuse in the church. I can't hear these things, la, 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 because then it means that it is everywhere. But Jesus and all the apostles, most of them talked about this idea of wolves in sheep's clothing. This was happening in the very birth of the church. And so who are we to think it's not still happening? Absolutely, it's happening. There are wolves out there, and the wolves do really well when they look like sheep, and we don't call them out on it. So we must call them out on it. Yeah. Well, and I, I love that uh, image. You mentioning the, the wolves. Here's a line in the book that just, well, I was greatly impacted by it. A good shepherd doesn't spend his time chasing after wolves, and trying to make them into non-predatory animals. Mm -hmm. No, he inconveniences himself, sacrificing his own body for the sake of the flock. That is so powerful. And I think what it it addresses is your uh, firm conviction about the evil of the predators, these wolves in sheep's clothing. Yeah, do you want to comment on my... uh, on that passage, on that. Yeah, I think it's very important if you just look at the biology of it. A wolf will never become a sheep. <laughs> it's it's never going to happen, no matter how many woolly garments they put over themselves. And, uh, you know, the, the scripture is pretty clear. It says, don't even associate with people like that. Um, this is not about grace and love. This is about protecting the flock. And so often what we have done, sadly, in the church and this, I'm talking about the global church, not not just Protestant or Catholic, but just the entire church. What we have done is we have thought, well, we really want to protect our reputation. So we're going to go take these wolves and either yell at the sheep who brought it up or kind of shift these wolves from place to place in their, you know, sheep garb. And then by by pretending it doesn't exist, then it doesn't exist. And what this is is a cancer. And I believe God is is eradicating that cancer through light and through exposure. And so people have asked me, do you get really discouraged and upset when you hear about another faith leader who has done something like Rabbi Zacharias? And I don't, because I see this as God's hand of bringing revival to his church. And when do you have revival? It's after the cleaning up happens. And this sin against humanity is one of the enemy's greatest weapons against the soul of a human. And so, of course, it's been in darkness for so long. And yes, there will be a spiritual fight when we expose it. But I'm grateful that people are being exposed because it means that we can talk about it. It means that we can deal um, justly with it and we can begin to create safer places within our churches. Yeah, and along with that, one of the things also that, uh, again, Lynn and I were talking about it, but you talk about just repentance and forgiveness and that uh, that easy forgiveness, the forgive and forget that 
we hear way too often <laughs> yes. uh, that just wanting to white and, and it goes with let's just make this a happy place we don't want to hear anything bad because Jesus is all about making us happy and therefore not confronting the evil or the sin and so what are some of the ways that you talk to us about forgiveness and what does forgiveness look like in these situations yeah I'll tell a story about that so I um through, I'm an investigator at heart. That's the part of the journalist inside of me. I really wanted to know who these people were that sexually abused me when I was five years old. It was two boys. They were in their teens. I had a last name that someone let slip, which they didn't mean to, but I got it. And I remembered it because I'm that kind of person. Um, and so I did some investigation and eventually through some help of someone else, I uncovered at least one of them and had found out that he had passed away from cancer. So I was actually kind of grateful because I didn't have to deal with, I was always worried that he had more victims. I'm sure that he did. Um, but as I learned all of that, I just continued to work through the forgiveness journey and I chose to forgive for my sake. <laughs> and, um, and then a couple of years ago, I went back to the place for the very first time where all of this happened. And I was very cavalier, honestly. I mean, this was, it's embarrassing to talk about because I had just read The Body Keeps the Score. And I knew intellectually that your body remembers, even if your brain's like, I'm fine. So I go back to the place where these boys had molested me in the Seattle area. I had, I mean, I'd lived there my whole life, but I hadn't gone back to that area. And, you know, I'm standing in front of these different places. My husband's with me, we're praying and and within five hours of visiting that site, although I had forgiven those boys and although I had, you know, worked through years of getting better, I started vomiting and I could not stop so much so that I thought I would have to go to the hospital. My body remembered the trauma. And so that's, I just want people to hear that because forgiveness is, doesn't negate what happened to you. You still have the trauma and when people tell you, well, you're walking in sin because you're not forgiving, they're also misunderstanding that forgiveness is a long journey. It does start with one decision. So maybe on March 5th, I made a decision to forgive that person. But for the rest of my life, there are going to be reminders. There's going to be triggers. And instead of thinking, this is what I used to think. I used to think, oh no, it means I didn't forgive them because I'm reminded of this again, or I saw something on TV that bothered me and that reminded me, so I haven't forgiven. No, it just means there's yet another layer. It's another opportunity to say, Jesus, I am so upset about this. I've chosen to forgive, but obviously there's another layer. I choose to forgive again, help me, heal me. And so forgiveness is much more complex and it's not just a one and done. And along with that also, I've seen so often where churches or families all will say, oh, you've forgiven him, so let's welcome this person back into the family <laughs> when there are no consequences. <laughs> and it's like, oh, my goodness. So, I mean, that's something I'm sure you've seen as well. And can you give some guidance on how you handle those situations when people approach you? Having grown up in a very difficult environment, I didn't really start to heal until I moved to another state. I had to get away from all of the perpetration in order to finally see clearly. And so if you have been abused and you are being forced to be around the person who, who abused you, the sad part of that is that this is an open wound that they're just pouring acid into. The only way that you can heal is to get away so that you can go to the hospital and heal 
and then, you know, test boundaries later. But right now is just the time to separate. So when believers say, well, you know, he's repented, it's all big. They have no idea the soul decaying thing (laughs) that that perpetrator has done. And I almost feel like we need to equate it with murder because it is murder of a soul. And so you wouldn't say like, let's say your uncle, you know, murdered your child. Okay. And then someone said, well, you just, he said, he's sorry, just have him come back. And, you know, you have a couple of the kids, let them jump on the uncle's lap. Well, of course you would not. You would want him to go to jail to pay for his crime. You would never want to be around him again. You could forgive him, but you're not going to, you're not going to have him babysit your kids. It's ridiculous when you think of it that way. Yeah. Yeah. So, so important. One of the, uh, lines uh, in this, um, one of the stories that you tell and one of the lines uh, is um, about someone who hears a story and then lectures the victim instead of loves the victim, Mm -hmm. lectured instead of loved. Yeah. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? I will say, thankfully, that one of the gifts that God gave me, even when I wasn't a Christ follower as a little five-year-old when all that violation happened, was I knew that it wasn't my fault. But most victims of sexual abuse somehow feel like it is their fault, even though it's not. And so when someone discloses and said, oh, well, this happened to me, particularly when it's like date rape, they'll receive uh, a comment like, well you know, why did you take a drink? Uh, you shouldn't be drinking alcohol or what were you wearing? And and it just further adds this shame. Um, because again, if we equate this with murder, you would never like, obviously, if someone's been murdered, they can't be talked to, but you would never, let's say they were attacked, physically attacked, not raped. And they're on their, you know, practically on their deathbed. You wouldn't listen to their confession of this thing well, I was walking down this alleyway and this person attacked me and I'm going to die soon. And the, it would be ridiculous for the person to say, well, what were you wearing? Why did they attack you? Did you look extra rich? And that's why they did it. It, it just is ridiculous. So the shame belongs to the person who created the shame. The shame does not belong to the person who is perpetrated against. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's... Um, if we could, I want to take that into the, how you close your book, you know, that the prophetic imagination, just kind of going there, what you, you say it so well in your book, but if you could just talk about that here as well, you, you say we stand at the cusp of revival. And I think that's so powerful because we see so many young people leaving the church and people of all ages mm-hmm. leaving the church because they've come to the church and been turned away, not believed for whatever the range of abuses, men and women. Mm-hmm. but they haven't been listened to. And so we do have an opportunity. And uh, and that's one of the beautiful things that you really point to in, in your, your work, all of your work as well. And I think um, the next gen- couple generations coming up, they highly value authenticity. They highly value transparency. And I, I talk about in the book about, you know, two churches with maybe a same situation of a youth pastor abusing someone in their congregation one that covers it up, doesn't talk about it, quietly dismisses him. He goes to some other church. We saw that in the Houston Chronicles Southern Baptist thing. You know, they just kind of shifted around. And then um, Nathan Leno in Houston, he is a pastor. I talk about this in the book where he heard about the abuse. 
he calls a press conference, which I'm so proud of him for doing that with the, with the victim's permission. She's not named, of course, but tells everybody what happens, commits to the person who was perpetrated against to give her um, therapy for life and turns the guy in. Of course, first thing he does is turn the guy in. And, and that person then ended up marrying someone in ministry, which is a huge, you know, story of redemption right there. That, you know, you look at those two pictures, hide, 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 darkness, more perpetration, more people being sexually abused, someone going to jail, the church saying it happened on our watch. We're sorry. We're, we repent. We didn't see it. We wish we had it. Now we're going to do better. We're going to provide counseling. That's what people want. I don't know what we're thinking when we think this hiding thing works. It just doesn't. Yeah. No. And uh, for those, if you, if you could say a word for our listeners um, who might uh, have heard a story recently or in the near future might hear a story, what, what should be our response? Well, um, thankfully, statute of limitations is changing. And so there's a longer um, area of that, you know, longer period of time. If the person who is disclosed to you had this happen to them as a minor, um, I would argue you, every Christian is a mandatory reporter. You have to report that. That's a crime. And it uh, it's an it's one that needs to be prosecuted, particularly if the person is still among children. Um, and then in terms of like adult on adult rape, uh, that's obviously still a crime. Uh, but you would then connect with the person, try to help them find resources that they need if they decide they have the choice in that matter to report or not to report. Um, and to be a support to listen and to maybe go with them to uh, report it. Um, those are kind of some of the things that are best practices in terms of someone disclosing to you. Of course, the scripture is very clear. You weep with those who are weeping. And so it's not that you give a bunch of advice. Uh, the best thing that ever happened to me, honestly, in this journey of healing in South Africa, when I was at um, the Cape Town 2010 conference, it was this World Evangelization Congress, and I was at this table with a guy named Malcolm, who was from South Africa, and everybody else was from all over the world, but he was from South Africa. And he knew my story, and at the end of the conference, he got on his knees before me. He started crying, and he said, I ask for your forgiveness on behalf of all the men who have done those terrible things to you. And his tears and his contrition did more for me than any counseling session, although I'm very pro-counseling, had ever done because it was someone who was feeling my pain, empathizing with it, and apologizing for it, even though it wasn't his to apologize for. These are the kinds of things that change the world. And I just encourage people to be deeply empathetic. Oh, that, uh, praise the Lord for Malcolm. May we all have that heart. Uh, th thank you, Mary, for, for writing this book. We too, uh, it it's powerful, uh, and it it's compelling, and and it's also practical. I found just ways that I, I hope I'll be a better person, a more faithful believer in this uh, trauma that is the mission field of our time. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on the Alabaster Jar. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.